problem. One thing I want to ask. Go is, ahead. Uh, and anything you want to stop. You were scuffling here in this town. Sure you are. Records. Uh, what, what are your memories of that time in the 60s when you were hustling to get a gig and do something? Um, I remember the day that I decided to come to Hollywood. It was very unexpected. I was what you would call a young man that didn't, didn't get along well with teachers. Adults always... Uh, Excuse me, we have cranberry, grapefruit... Orange for me. Um, I always felt that grown people didn't have all the answers and tried to bully us and make us think they did. Uh, school was very boring. When I was planning to go back to school, this is my 18th birthday, I was getting ready to graduate. I was at an all-boys school, bad boys, called Jacob A. Reese. This is in L.A.? Yeah, southeast Los Angeles. Yeah. And um, you know how you get ready to start back to school? You want your clothes together, and you, you get sharp, you get ready. I, I laid my clothes out the night before school started, and my birthday is September 12th, so school happened to hit this year on my birthday. But when I got up the next morning, I wasn't going to school, Joe. Just something's clicked? Something said, you're going to Hollywood today. I started putting on the clothes I was going to wear to school to Hollywood, for Hollywood. When my mother discovered that I wasn't going to school and I was standing there combing my hand in the mirror and I said, Mama, I'm not going to school today. She went crazy. Baby, you got to go to school. This is your last semester. You're going to graduate. Baby. I got to go to Hollywood today. You don't know nobody. How you going to get out there? Because I didn't have no car or nothing. You know, we were very poor as far as money. <clears throat> um, I hitchhiked and walked to Hollywood. When I came out on Rosmore into Vine, there's a statue standing there today. I told Ed this story. It's a church. I don't know what kind of statue it is. But I stood there and looked at that statue for about 10 minutes. I wasn't praying. I wasn't doing any of that silly shit. I was just looking at the statue. As I turned around and looked up Vine... I started walking slowly because I knew I'm getting close to Hollywood. Capitol Records always represented Hollywood to me. I walked all the way up to Hollywood and Vine, and I stood on the left corner facing Capitol before you cross over. I stood there about, four, about three and a half, four hours, just looking, looking at the cars, looking at the people moving, people with briefcases. And at that time, Hollywood was spotless. It wasn't uh, the way it is today. Uh, it was a different environment, different time, and it, it really inspired me. I knew that's where I wanted to be. Not necessarily in that movement, but in this place, where the movement is. And I went back home four and a half, or three and a half, four hours later. And four days later, some guys asked me, to sing bass for them in background called The Upfronts. We made our first record. <clears throat> it was a little local record. It wasn't nothing exciting. 
but it was very exciting to me, Joe. Trust me. I bet. Yeah, it was very, you very exciting. KGFJ or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was on KGFJ. All the guys were there. They had Honey and Cock. And that group uh, couldn't rehearse on time. They couldn't come together. Everybody wanted to drink wine. I wanted to rehearse, learn new steps. The guy that owned the group broke up that group. He formed another one. And I was in that group, and that group didn't work. I got in one more group, and then I swore I'd never get in another group. Too many minds, too many people, um, too many egos. And the egos weren't uh, creative and serious. They were that flashy, I want to have something to say bullshit, you know. So from 1960 to 1971, I struggled in the record industry. I was the kid that they saw coming who had his souls. You could hear me coming two blocks away, flapping. <laughs> David Mook, uh, Bob King gave me my first job in the record industry. I was involved with Bobby Fuller. Is this Bob and Earl? Uh, no, this is after Bob and Earl. Bob and Earl was friends of mine. We just knew each other. I didn't have nothing to do with them per se. The uh, duck record that Jackie Lee did, I was involved with. What about the Harlem Shuffle? No, all I did was the Harlem Shuffle. I didn't do anything on the Harlem Shuffle. That was Bob and Earl. Um, the duck which Earl had in 1965, I did a, a little arranging with him on that. What was it like around Hollywood for a young guy trying to make it there? Was Very there a, tough. There were a lot of offices, though. There was sure a lot of action. <laughs> there were so of, many companies, yeah. Decca, yeah, you know, Liberty, companies. everywhere, Imperial. But it was still tough. It was tough. For, it depends on who you were, Joe. Yeah. If you were a guy who could read music, had a car, little bankroll, apartment, nice clothes, it wasn't that tough for you. But if you were a young kid, 19, 20 years old, who has two children and a third one on the way and refuses to leave them, a kid who was on welfare because he refused to steal anybody's property or take anybody's money, he, you found life a lot tougher because there were no salaries, yeah. Go ahead, John. But that, that time here was, there was sure a lot of action, I remember I loved it. No, no, no. It was, I didn't, yeah, but see, I came into it knowing what I had to offer. All I had was the will and the love for music. I couldn't read music or write it. No connections, no car, no money, no bankroll, no clothes, no nothing. Uh, but what I loved about it was you were always able to meet somebody interesting that was doing something. Leon Rene of Class Records gave me my very first um, salary gig. Not salary, but payment. In other words, my first union date, which was non-union. It was on a song called Tossing an Ice Cube. Three girls in Class Records had had a little success with Bobby Day, Eugene Church, and them. And uh, he needed a guy to clap uh, hands on the session. They had hired some people. And the people they hired couldn't do it. And I was sitting there with a friend of mine. I said, I can do that. I went in there in one take and laid it out for him. He gave me $100. He gave me that $100 dollar bill, and it was a $100 bill that I had earned doing something with rhythm, music. With, regardless of if it was popping fingers, it was my first money earned from doing something with 
my abilities in Hollywood, and that was in 1962. So I got to see a lot of the old timers before they left. Tell you what I, what I did get in spite of my poorness, Joe. The people that I met uh, took a very serious liking to me because they knew that I was a young man who was very serious. I didn't come to Hollywood for the ladies. I couldn't afford to go to your parties. I was invited to them, but I didn't have no clothes to wear. Um, but they gave me valuable information. Um, I knew the bullshitting producers who always got something going, a cigarette case, and they always standing around you doing this, you know. <laughs> you know, all the whistles and horns. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yes, Jesus. But the guys who were doing things would always drop something on me. Bud Dollinger was one of those people. Uh, Gil uh, uh, from, uh, no, from uh, Decker. Gil Roden uh, was another nice man. Um, Al Bennett was a nice man. David Mook, Bob King. Um, I knew I didn't know. I never came into this industry with an ego ever in my life. I knew I had to learn. I knew I had to earn that car. I knew I had to earn those shoes. I had to earn that, that coat to wear in Hollywood, and I wanted to earn it in Hollywood. Hal Davis in Motown used to give me clothes. Um, he was a very good friend. When he, he knew I was struggling, and when he was, he bought all his clothes aside the board. It used to be on Vibe. And the clothes he gave me, it was, they were like brand new clothes. He took care of his things, and he did. He gave me quite a few clothes, so for a while I was able to look decent. I started working for Bob King through Paul Paletti, who wrote those oldies but goodies. Paul uh, is a major factor in my life in this industry. Uh, when I was on the road with Jackie Lee, we almost got killed out there. Uh, we went to jail, uh, had an accident. Uh, I fell asleep at the wheel driving. I mean, we was pushing that chilling circuit, one-nighters. Uh, the day that I decided to come home, it's amazing because I was in New Orleans and that was the first flight, first time I'd ever been on an airplane. It was Delta coming from New Orleans to home. I knew I had to come home. The next morning, I got home that evening. The next morning, I get a call from Paul. You want to be an r man? and r man, what the hell is an r man? <laughs> he said, we'll, fig we'll figure that out when you get here. Now, in those days, if you could have an office <laughs> and a phone partner, <laughs> you were in business. <laughs> no, don't add that in because now you're really serious. And a phone. Somebody answers the phone. That's amazing. You know, I, yeah, it was wide open. The West Coast was just becoming it. Becoming, yeah, into the industry. There were norms with the other guys, with Spectre and Herbie Alpert and Jerry Morris. And we used to say, let's make this town go, man. And I used to fill in as a disc jockey for Larry McCormick and Hunter and Alan Free. Wow. Town here and KFWB. It was, but it was exciting. There was a music community all within right, 20 blocks in Hollywood. Wow. KFWB, KLAC. Mm. Jay, all right around here. But you got the office. I did. I got the office. What did you have to do? 
he offered me forty dollars a week salary. I said to Bob, "If that's too much, you can make it twenty, because I'm always willing to earn my way." Was this Bob Keen? Uh huh, Bob Keen. And in in six to eight months, I was running the whole operation. It was amazing, and uh, that's why I developed my writing skills to not write hits. And I had a couple of number one records in, in Europe while I was there. But to learn what I didn't know. See, you have to have time to develop. You have to be able to be in a place where a piano is, where you can sit there all day, all night, any day, in, out, figuring out what you know and what you don't know. Do I sound like somebody else? And I got an opportunity to do that there. And that was because of Paul Valetti and Larry Noons, who later became my godfather, uh, was a partner with Bob. And they had a joint venture going on the company anyway. There was a dispute, and then Larry wanted to fold it up, and he folded. And the funniest thing, Joe, I could have went to Larry when that company folded in 67, but I forgot about it. Larry, Larry was so, he was so wealthy, it was frightening. And the way he and I ended up being as men, we would have hit it off. I just forgot about it. Were you in despair when this thing fell apart? Yeah, my heart was broken. Because I swore I'd never work for another company again. And, so what, what and I said I was going independent, and that's when I really bit into that big tree. <laughs> independent. That was hard. <clears throat> David Mook had been watching me. From a distance, he, he approached me and said he wanted to sign me to Schroeder's Publishing Company, and we was talking about a deal. And uh, he, I went up to his office, and he had a serious little deal there. I refused the money and took the publishing, half of the publishing. David thought I was insane, naturally, four children now, and uh, no job. How was everybody living? Welfare. So you're right. Our jobs, when I, in other words, when I was working at, uh, anniversary. Oh, when is that party? Uh, June 27th. 27th, yeah. Yeah. Where they gonna have it? The lot at the sound stage. For the 20th. They had the 20th. Yeah. They had a lot of food all over the room. It was a terrific evening. They're bringing uh, over 200 international people. Yeah. It's going to be a terrific thing. And you got to work for that. Yeah. That's great. Who signed it? John signed it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're out there. So. Uh, struggling. Independent. And uh, 67. So when the money turned, when the company folded, I had to do something else to get money. And I, went, I didn't want the salary from the songs the publishing deal because I always felt that one day I would have my own and I wanted to own my songs from day one. I had given up songs to Bob Keen's company which I ended up owning for a dollar. Amazing story Joe. How'd that happen? Um, let me finish with this one here. Um, yeah I turned when I turned down that money David thought I was insane and to him I was. But to me, I was perfectly sane and of sound mind. In 1968, 7, 68, 69, 70, 
I went through a period of productions, recording, but I could never get the records to the street. I was the only poor producer who was getting sessions for 50 pieces. And I mean, I was cutting for everybody, man. But I couldn't get the records on the street. Uh, I had been approached by Florence Greenberg to sing. And uh, Charlie Green and Brian Stone uh, was very influential in my life. Um, they taught me what not to do. They taught me what to do in many ways. And they said, Barrett, you need money, let's go in there and make a deal, get five grand. And then, you know, they didn't give a shit about cutting a record, man. By this time, then, you, people knew you. No, they didn't. No, in Hollywood, a few did. Yeah, but even though there was no success no, to tell. No, no, a few in Hollywood that knew me. Yeah, by now. Oh, yeah. No longer that kid. No, no. Yeah, but no, they, yeah, they still flapping now. This is when they flapping. But they knew you. But they knew me. Because I was at Mustang Bronco, and I got a little action. Yeah, they knew me. You fucking fuck. Here comes flapping Barry White. That's right. Here he comes, boy. Uh, Stan at Gold Star said to me one day, uh, one of the strain players, Jack Showman, brought me an army coat that he wore in the war because uh, he felt sorry for me. And I wore the coat. I conducted the orchestra in that coat. And Stan said to me, he said, if you ever explode, Barry White, you're going to scare people. And he had tears in his eyes. People legitimately really felt sorry for me. They really did because they never, they didn't think I was going anywhere. Well, what did your wife say through all this? Well, by now, she uh, uh, was very disheartened. She didn't like the music. And the reason you're not having no success is because nobody liked the music. I'm tired of being in this situation. And I want a divorce. Understandable. Sure, you're right. And in 1969, I said, you got it. I said, I want you to give me some time to get my money together so that I can at least take care of you and these four children. Because I was also a father, you know, a legitimate one, not the uh, so-called. Um, 1969, Transcontinental came into the industry and started buying up production companies. They brought they bought Record Service, which was Larry and Monroe Goodman's company. Then Larry started running Transcon. Uh, we had a deal with Sidewalk Productions, Danny Kessler. Boy, are you coming up with names? Oh yeah. Danny's running a limo service up at the Bel Air Hotel. I saw him. Wow. Still with a bad tooth. Yeah. Bad tooth, still heading yeah. to track in the afternoon. Yeah. Danny, <laughs> Santa Anita, huh, baby? <laughs> He gave me a deal. Give me a fact right there. Yeah. And uh, it lasted about nine months. Then they folded. 1970 comes in. I go to a NARM convention at the Century Plaza Hotel. By now, I've met three girls, and I've named them Love Unlimited. Now, what were you going to be able to do with them? I was going to record them as an artist. I was going to write it and because produce. because they sang that good or because you had this vision of what you wanted? No, it's because I love their sound. Strictly because I love their sound. Yeah. And I'd met them in 69. And uh, we got together. They said they wanted to sing. They was from San Pedro, little squares. Didn't know nothing about the business. 
And I I shut down after I went to that convention. I shut down for about seven months. I didn't come to Hollywood. I just got in the room and started writing. I knew the change was coming. I felt it at that convention. I told my wife now, Glodine, I said, there's something going on here. Something is getting ready to happen in the 70s. I, this is 1970 convention. 1971 rolls around. I'm ready now to start rehearsing the girls, which I did. I get a call from Paul Paletti again, because only Paul knew where I was. Paul said, Larry's looking for you. I said, Larry who? He said, Larry Noons. It was like a ton of bricks fell on me. I said, Larry Noons? I said, Paul, I forgot about Larry Noons. I honest. See, it was taken from my memory. Because what Larry and I would do together, I had to really be creatively ready for Larry. It wasn't whether Larry was ready for me. Larry was ready for me. I had to get ready for Larry. Meaning, a man would come into my life and say, I'm going to take away all the bullshit that has been your problem as to the reason why you have not been able to get success and you and I are going to know if you got it or not. Well, he, we, I met with Larry. We knocked it off. We hit it off right on the first day. It took us almost four months to put that deal together. Is that when you went to Fox? Wasn't it? No, this wasn't Fox yet. This was, not Fox. This was when uh, I cut Love Unlimited. He gave me the money. I went in and recorded Love Unlimited. My first gold record was Walking in the Rain with the One I Love. What label was that on? Uni. Oh, Russ Regan was president. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry took the master to Russ. Now, was Larry your partner? Was I was his partner. He owned 80% of the company. I didn't own but 20 and Larry's concept was he was going to go to the five unknown great producers, in his opinion, who are known, and give them each 20% of their companies. He would own 80, and he's got five companies, and he's going to, you know, he's going to parlay. Absolutely. But I told him the night he told me that the first night me and him, he and I sat down and got together. I was going out the door. I said, Larry, you'll never get to number two. He never did. He never did. Uh, went in the studio, cut, came out with the master. He said, let's go to A&M. Joe Sutton was running it, and uh, Russ Regan was head of uni. Russ freaked over it. I got to have this album. This album's a smash. We put Love Walking in the Rain out. It was a smash. We go on the road, and suddenly misery sets in. What happened? This is not where I want to be. We're doing small clubs. We're doing things. It wasn't where we were working. It was the conditions we had to work in. In other words, I didn't mind working in the clubs, but I resented it being a club where pimps hang out. Where, uh, because the music that I create is of a higher intellect than that. It is not only encompasses pimps, but whores, ball players, executives, everybody. And that circuit only leans itself to one area of people. So I knew we were in trouble with a hit record. Now, 
I, I when we come off the road, I can make a call to Sammy Davis Jr.'s office because he had expressed interest in Love Unlimited to open for him in Vegas. He loved their show and everything. This was on a Monday. I had a meeting with him set up for a Thursday. I went into my little office, Larry and I's office. He had me over on Sunset. And my piano was in there. I slept on the floor then in my office. I sat down and started fooling around with this song. And Joe, I must have sat there from a quarter to two in the afternoon to about a quarter to nine that evening playing the same thing over and over. And all I had was this much of an intro. I finished that song a day or two later, wrote another one. I canceled the meeting at Sammy Davis Jr. because I was going to go in the studio on Thursday, but I wrote another song on Thursday. I didn't go in the studio on Friday. Now, when I go into the studio after I finish writing a song, I'm going in to sing it to find me a singer to sing the song, and I want to see how it goes. Being an honest producer, meaning objective, um... When I heard Barry White's voice on those songs, something went through me that I'd never experienced in my life. My engineer was sitting there, and I was scared to tell him what I really felt because I knew he was going to think I was ego-tripping. First thing going to come to his fucking mind. Yeah, he's trying to find an artist to sing. Now he's going to be a singer. Were you singing all the way through it, or was it the talking singing? No. No, it was singing and rapping. Yeah. I'm sitting there, and I said, Frank, you're not going to believe what I'm fixing to say to you. I said, but that's the voice for those songs. He didn't say nothing. He just kept looking straight at the glass. He didn't look at me. I, I said, mm. He just looked straight. Great point of confidence. Anyway, I went to Russ, and uh, Russ... I said, Russ, I think I've got something that's very interesting. It took me almost three weeks to tell Larry. See, I knew Larry was, would, would want me to sing. Larry would want me to do anything I wanted to do creatively. He gave me more freedom than my father could have gave me. Um, Russ said, I think you're right. He gave me a budget. I gave him a budget for thirty-two thousand. I went in and cut the album for twenty-eight. And I brought it back there, and they didn't like the album. At twentieth, oh, oh, he, he had left. Russ was now over twentieth. He's over there at twentieth. And they didn't like it over there. And he and Jose Wilson yeah. did not like the album. Russ told us to shop it. Um, Larry and I could not believe it, but they wanted us to shop it. First place Larry took my album was to A&M, and they turned it down. Second place he took it was the MCA. They turned it down. Then he played it for Jack Gold. Jack freaked over that album. He called Clive. Clive heard just a little bit of it over the phone. He said, I'm very interested in that album. 
He's flying out to make the deal. We were very happy because with Russ, we had spent up all the money. We needed money for the company. If we shop at the CBS, we're going to get some extra bread. So we back in business. Well, I got to tell you, that Saturday morning of the week that Clive said I'll be out there next week, the phone rang. It was Russ Regan. He said, I'm keeping the album. Why? Can you ever say why? The interesting anecdote to this is he didn't find this out till later. Yeah. Business. Can the average ears in the business, what I learned from that was they can hear the norm. If you bring an NR executive, most NR executives are executives, a record that sounds like something they've heard, you got a shot. When you bring them innovative shit, things that's approached differently, not happening. It wasn't until five months later that Russ and they realized what they were really dealing with, with my music. And it wasn't until 1974 when the international world busted wide open that they really knew that we had a big commodity. But you made a record company. Did it happen right away, the record? Right away. Rod McGrew loves you to death. Was the first black radio personality to play Barry White, and he had heard it going to work on KRLA. No kidding. He stopped, called KRLA, and asked them, "What was that record you just played?" They told him how to get it, and Jose brought him a copy. Um, the girls were still at uni. We go over to Uni to check on the girls to see how the album is getting ready. It's supposed to, the next single is supposed to be out. And nobody knew about it. You know, the very disrespectful games the industry played, you know, playing that. Pat Pippolo said, Barry, to tell you the truth, man, we didn't know nothing about no release. And the record was pressed. But it wasn't going nowhere. Now, these girls just had a number one smash, boy. I got pissed off, Joe. And I just started walking down the hallway. Larry was screaming. I walked straight into Mike Maitland's office. And I told him, I want my girls released now. He gave it to me. As he was drawing it up, I was on the phone with Russ Regan. I said, I got the girls. Do you want them or not? And MCA hadn't heard the second album. I was into their second album, which was Under the Influence of Love, the first female black album artist to go in the top five pop charts in the history of our industry. Love Unlimited was the first one. That album was Under the Influence of Love. That, that, that was... That was beside the other album, your album. That's right. Yeah, my my single was out. Yeah, this was uh, I'm Gonna Love You a Little Bit More. That's right, that was out. Yeah. And now I'm going to check on the girls' product. I see. But it wasn't happening, so we take them away. Russ wants them. 
We make the deal with Russ. I go in and finish their album. By now, my album is a smash. What's the name of that album? I've got so much to give. The song that I sat there and played from a quarter to two to nine o'clock. I've got so much to give. And we put out the girls' product. It started hitting them charts. Russ said, Barry, I don't know what's happening, but Papa, you got some formula going. People, everybody's talking about your music. I said, well, Russ, get ready for this one. I want to do an instrumental album. Russ said, you insane. <laughs> he said, you crazy. I said, Russ, I want to take Love Theme from the girls' album. I want to release it as a single. While it's out there taking care of business, I want to go in the studio and cut an instrumental album and entitle the orchestra, the Love Unlimited Orchestra. He said, that's the first thing that's wrong with it. It should be called the Barry White Orchestra. You're wrong, Russ. It should be called the Love Unlimited Orchestra. They turn gold. Now, what, what is going on in your head at this time? All Music. Of a sudden, from the scuffler, the flapping shoes. I know. you got a career of your own that's an international smash. You've mm -hmm. got these girls who are top five, <laughs> and now you got an instrumental thing. What What's happening to you? You get More crazy? music. No. no. I couldn't get crazy, Joe. I had Larry. Didn't affect you? I mean, Not at all. If he was living, he'd tell you. Very white. was like he never had nothing. I didn't know how much money I had until Larry asked me to buy his house down there. That was Larry's house. Oh, wow. We were sitting at dinner, me, he and I, and he asked me to buy his house, and I just spit up everything that because I thought he was out of his fucking mind. Yeah. See, Who was La looking after your money? Larry was. Yeah. Did he take good care of it? Very good care of it, Joe. Yeah. That's why we were like we were. How'd you get the publishing back from Bob Keene? Was that later on that you did that, or...? Larry owned the publishing companies out the deal when he closed down everything. And when I told him I wanted to try to get 16 of my songs out of this publishing company, he said, you got a dollar? I said, yeah. He said, give me a dollar. I gave him a dollar. He handed me five publishing companies. Led Zeppelin. Oh, it's all kind of songs in it. You wouldn't believe the relationship we had, friend. And that just came because... Just like that. The, the you just clicked so good. And you you will not believe the relationship of Barry White and Larry Nunes. You will never believe it. You will never believe it. And how long did that relationship? Till he died. Which was how 78. Long? Uh, we became, in my first year, I had nine gold records. Was, first year. What, what were the pressures on you from all over the There world? was none. Press or the record company or anything? I didn't do a lot of press. Yeah. Um... I had to go out and tour. I went out for a couple of months. I didn't like touring. See, touring to me is something that people need when they don't have other talents. Most singers have to live on the road. That is the thing that I was watching when I was coming up in the industry that I didn't want to do. Uh, I became an engineer because I was forced to. Engineers couldn't mix my music the way I heard it. I became an arranger because I was forced to. I couldn't give my songs to an arranger and expect for him to hear it the way I hear it. It never came out right. I became a multi-musician because playing a piano wasn't enough. I had to learn how to play drummers to tell a drummer. I had to learn how to blow bass to, to tell a bass man. Everything that I, in the, in the, that I do now, I was forced into doing it, not knowing that one day 
this would be my life and I had to be that equipped to live in this industry this way. In other words, uh, I could have had one year of hits, Joe, like most artists have. They'll have a couple of hits and then you don't hear them no more. Uh, I was always worried. The only pressure was on me. I put on me the next one. See, every album to me is my first chance and my last. See, I'm the boy with the flapping shoes. I'm the one who was not embarrassed to walk up in front of you with his flapping shoes and ask you, did you have anything for me to do? I worked for a man once for two and a half weeks, me and six other uh, musicians. He wrote us a bouncing check. My rent man was, it was, had had the eviction notice to throw me out. Luckily, I had a bouncing check to show him. I did not go off on the man. I called the man that gave me that bouncing check and let him know how much I appreciated the opportunity. Because what I learned in that two and a half weeks, Joe, was awesome. He couldn't have paid me enough. That's when I learned that there's no such thing as a job. That is a word, a, a, a man-made word that is designed to affect people a certain way. There's no such thing as a job. When you go and work for someone and you get knowledge, I like to look at it as, oh, yeah, they pay you too. Because when I leave his job, I took his money and his knowledge. Tell me, during that period, mm -hmm. were the girls getting difficult? Were they, no. Uh, were they getting Love married? Unlimited and Barry White history was unlike any artist ever has been on the horizon as a team. We came together and we left together. We did everything together. If they didn't want Love Unlimited and the orchestra on my show on television, I didn't do it. I turned down the show down. I turned Murray Griffin's show down. I turned down Midnight Special. They didn't want the orchestra. They didn't want the girls. They just wanted the star Barry White. Well, they stars, too. I can show you reports where they got gold hanging on the wall, too. Well, I had to... You see, in my, in, my, in my way of thinking, Joe, my philosophy is you have to be loyal to something. You can't be a whore all your life, man. Uh, we, there's too many people want to be whores, so I don't have to worry about being one. I think that there's a time when people give their words to each other. It has to mean something. I think there comes a time when I say to an artist, I'm with you, and an artist say, I'm with you, Barry White, that that's what it is. I'm a street cat, see, I belonged in gangs, and when you had a partner, you went down with your partner. Whether you won the fight or lost it, you went down together. So I know with what loyalty is, what keen participation is, gang activity, uh, everybody knowing what you're doing, yeah, everybody said, I understand regimental philosophy. And I've used it all my life. I've raised my children with it. Um, the reason we were so happy together, there was no problem. I don't have the story to tell you that a lot of other entertainers have to tell you about getting screwed and all that. Because the information that I got that I told you about earlier was valuable. And I never forget nothing no one tells me. What was the impact of uh, all the sexy stuff that you were doing? I mean, women coming at you or anything like that? Jesus Christ. That had to be Yeah, that, that, that was incredible. Um, everyone to me has to pick a subject to talk about in music if you're going to be a writer. Mine is love. 
I like the two people concept. I like to, because I know when a man's making love, when a man's about to climax, the last thing he thinks about is war. Guess so. Okay, the last thing he thinks about is how can he blow up a nation. That's the last thing from his mind. So if there is something in this world that we all atone to, love making is it. Love making, they do it. Fleas, fuck, flies, snakes. Everybody's into love making, Joe. Besides that, it's the most powerful element that men and women possess. Most of us don't know what it, how to use it, but we all possess it. Well, you, you instinctively, well, it wasn't, it wasn't something you wouldn't know, but you knew it, and you made that the focal point of your movie. That's right. And did women come out of the woodwork? Uh, got a message from that at all? The <laughs> women use the music to get their men to relate to them better. Talk to me. Tell me what's on your mind. Men use the music to get the girls in the mood to make love. So either way you had it, Barry White is the one artist who actually was in your bedroom with you at your most sacred, sensuous moment of your life. I've had fans, guys walk up to me and say, you know, they get there and they look. Barry, I feel embarrassed. I feel like you've been watching me get off. <laughs> Different compliments. A lot of babies been named Barry. The Barry boom that was the baby boom in the 74 that they wrote about. Uh, one of the greatest highlights of my career then was Ted Kennedy when he printed in print that the only music he listens to on his yacht and in his home is Barry White's music. Um, it was very thrilling when I went to Paris and had the audience of such great accomplished people of the arts was present. It was amazing. My pressure only came from me. Make sure you don't let Larry down, Barry. How good was the music? The message was terrific. How good do you rate the music? I rate the music as a different spectrum. See, there's nothing new with music. It's interpretations of it. How do you use strings and horns? People in our industry use strings very shitty. Well, we need we need some violins. Well, go hire four of them. Four violins gonna not gonna give you. They're gonna make you think, yeah, I'm here in violin. Twenty shit. When you hear the strings, I want you to hear the strings. When you hear the French horn speak, I want them to speak. When you hear the oboes and the bassoons and the horn section, the rest, I want them to speak. People in every, and we was talking about this today at lunch, to make a music, Joe, listen to this statement. This was said today at lunch. To make a music that is sold all over the world, bar no place. I was invited to Cuba by Castro. We were setting up productions. I wanted Walter Cronkite to host it. I mean, I was going in there. Invited by him. Not no self-appointed shit. I didn't want to get in no political thing, you know. I would have loved to go on over there and talk to Castro and the, seeing the Cuban people. I've got fans all over this world. 
The music strikes everybody the same way. Whoever's interested in Barry White's music all tell you the same story in different languages. Why then, after 1978, this universal message, why did the audience... Fade away. They didn't fade away. What what happened? We faded away. Why did you fade away? Because I went with a big guy. I went with a giant who don't need talent. And that was? CBS. And you were just a number on the wall like... uh, I was a major deal for his paper. But it didn't mean anything outside of that. There was no support. Even the people that made the deal could not... The man that really wanted Barry White and Love Unlimited in that orchestra was Bruce Lundvalt. And after we were there four months, you hired him, friend. You know what happened. That's what Barry White got caught up in. The biggest deal black at that time in CBS's history. I had it. And nobody came through for it. And it's been this number of years. Uh, I was at CBS for five years, Joe. Good or bad, when I make a contract deal, I live up to it. It was over in 83. I said, let me get off the scene for a minute. Let me go try to form my own record company independently. That's how I met Bascar Menon going to Europe to talk to the labels about distribution. We had a couple of guys, joint venture capitalists, who we were speaking to about $8 million. Rod McGrew was involved. He was involved. Uh, Al Bergamo was going to be president. Used to be at MCA. uh, 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 I wasn't forming a company to ego trip. I was forming a company who would take a serious look at my product. When the guys, joint venture capitalists, money was tied to Texas. They lived in Texas. Their money was in oil. When when the the disaster hit, uh, they went under. They took care of bills for me. They're very nice people. But the deal didn't fly, and I had to make a decision because we knew going in. That was the downside. If this doesn't work, you're going to have to go. Diane Taylor died of cancer. And... um, I'm not going to do to that name what was done to the Supremes. Uh, as I said, this was the Flappy Shoe Boys, part of his sacred life. How, how has your music moved along? What? Well, technology, for one, has moved it. Uh, I still write about love songs, love stories, but it's more of now stories, lyrics, uh Songs on the album called Under the Rainbow Moon, uh, I'm Ready for Love, Love is in Your Eyes, um, share titles, songs that mean the same you thing. approach the same way? Yes. Yeah. We got the rap in there because people, that's part of Barry White's sure. sound. Yeah. Uh, we have the rap, but it's where it is and it's what kind of rap it is today. So um, everybody's very excited about the new album. Has anybody over the years touched the, the same kind of chord with, uh, with buyers and listeners that you did? Uh, anybody close to it? This is how you'd be able to answer that question. 
as any artist that we know of since Barry White left the scene in eighty in eight in seventy eight seventy nine rather has anybody made music that sold to the world? I know of one, Michael Jackson. And that'd be a, maybe a whole other set of circumstances there too. I know. Show you right. For all other reasons. Let me tell you what was said to me by Bashkar Menon. He said, nobody has a Barry White. Well, it, it is it is fascinating to me that you you hit this universal subject, which never goes away. You talk about love. I got Freddie Jackson who's out there singing. But they don't want to hear him in Sweden. No, they don't know. But your stuff and the way the way you attack it. Did you ever do it in any other languages at all? Had a number one record in Spanish. Love making music yeah. at CBS. And as you look back, is there anything? that you would have changed with all of this? Uh, any uh, other than the decision to go to CBS? Or no, well, that decision was honest. Everybody in my camp, all my managers, lawyers, business people, Bruce Lundvold, I told everybody before I signed, I did not want to sign with CBS. It's not going to work. And Larry was gone by this time. No, Larry was dead. Yeah. Larry was over. So you had lost the good counselor that... Uh, That's right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, there was a lot of money to deal. There was a lot of things, yo. Bruce wanted Barry White. And I signed knowing that I was going to lose a great deal of my career. You did, huh? Oh, yeah. You had that instinct that that would happen. That's Rob McGrew, if you ever see him. Yeah. I know. I saw him during that period where he was... Just whipped. He was so frustrated trying to get through that CBS operation. And Bruce had gone and come with me by that time. It was over. It was over the Sunday I signed. That's that's a shame. But it wasn't a negative, because let me tell you what I got out of that five years. More schooling. Because I am very inquisitive of wanting to know how things work. Because of Rod McGrew's astuteness, consistency, and his loyalty, he and I were able to crack the CBS system to see how it works. From pressing to SRCs, you name it, it got very serious for a minute, Joe. I, I know how you how he was on the case. Mm. Uh, what what frustrated we had lunch a couple of times I know. during that period, and I there was not much I could do for him. I, you know, they were the enemy for That's us. That's right. All the time. I know. So I know. Had he been in the other system, uh, would have been totally I'd different. Given him a safe conduct pass. Um, during the period too, mm-hmm. you dressed kind of outrageously, white and big coats mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Was. Was that because you enjoyed it, or you no. trying to create an image? No, or? just trying to do something to deal with the image of what you're supposed to be doing. What if you had looked like Billy D. Williams or something like that? What if you had been an enormous sex symbol like that? Would it have made any difference? Would have made no difference. No difference I'm a homebody. Yeah. Uh, all, everybody in my camp would always say, yeah. Barry White's the only person that isn't a star. The reason I didn't want to sing... <laughs> 
is because the image of most entertainers, singers, is a very low image, Joe. And I was fortunate enough to be able to sit in on conversations and hear executives put their artists down. I'm talking about artists who... Big artists. you're right. And they want to be looked upon that way. Uh, part of becoming involved in business is being respected. Well, the last place I'm going to go in business is where they respect less. Uh... I've always been a man of integrity, a man of my word. William Morris, Sammy Weisborg, and I were like that. I'm probably, I don't know of any other, I'm one of the few artists that was represented by William Morris without a contract. I refused to sign one. My word was my bond, and that's the way we did business. I never sold and cheated to take the money and run. I don't do that. I will not stoop to that shit. Uh, and I know that record companies would rather have a man with them who plays those games than one who doesn't. I understand the animal that I'm dealing with in this industry. But I am not gonna going to stop being less of a person because of the rules of Rome. If I don't dig what the Romans do, I'll leave. I think it's fair to pay people. I think it's fair to tell a person what you think because if product ain't shit, it ain't shit. If it is, you got to tell them, hey, man, you're coming into a situation where you may make it and you may not. Um, I've always tried to carry myself a certain way, Joe. And I stay at home. I've raised seven children. I'm working on the seventh one now. And all my children are grown. and doing very well in life. Um... I taught them a strong philosophy. You depend on yourself and don't do it. Don't get your mind and your life tied up in the money. See, once you look at a bank robber who loves to rob a bank and one who's doing it for money, the one who's doing it for money is going to always get busted. The one who loves robbing banks ends up with a $500,000 salary teaching the FBI how to catch that one who's doing it for money. Show you right, Joe. So I know that... To love a craft, to master a craft is the most important thing I can do. And from the mastery comes by salary. Show you right. I got a, I got a picture. I was MC of a, uh, one of the NARM award dinners. Mm -hmm. And I'm giving you an award. And right. You're in a white coat. A white mink coat. And we're hugging, and he's, you can you, really you, see my face. Yeah, no, you I disappeared. I disappeared into the coat. <laughs> I was I was at about 350 then, 350 pounds, because I've lost uh, 127 pounds. Wow. Yeah. That was, that was the enormous Barry White. Then That's you, right. You were bigger than life then. That's right. Bigger than life. Mm -hmm. Was it hard at all being Barry White? You don't Never. think so, huh? When you look back on it. Never was. Um, I was very respected by my peers. <laughs> Because those serious ones who knew, like Tom Bell, Gamelin Huff, uh, Norman Whitfield, or Stevie Wonder, they knew I was serious. And you had Larry. Yeah, that was my heart. That, that could keep you, because it's easy to be seduced by all the people around you and all the 
all the people and all Touch the that door that somebody not gonna do. Yeah. You can have anything you want, you know, and it, it's hard to keep your head on straight. Larry loved me the way I was, and he said, Bear, you're gonna be very successful in life. He said, You are a different kind of animal. And you believe it still to Oh, I know it. Oh, I know it. Terrific.